And I invite you to turn in your Bible, or in the Bible in the pews, to 2 Timothy chapter 2. When the church comes together, the church reads and worships by and prays according to the Word of God. The Bible, God has given us the Bible, His Word, that we might have fellowship with Him. So we don't just come in any way. It isn't according to our opinions, our ideas. We come according to what God has said in His Word. And so therefore we take this text of the Scriptures as our reading for our sermon this morning. 2 Timothy 2, 8-13. And I'm not sure what page that is in the Pew Bibles. Does anybody have it? In case you need it out of the Pew Bibles, this is page 995. Let's pray together as we come to the word of the Lord. Our Father in heaven, we glorify you that you have spoken. You have made all things by your Son and in these last days. Rather than through prophets, you have now spoken to us by him. What an awesome thing that you would come to your creatures, the infinite, holy, majestic God, God of all righteousness and goodness, wisdom and judgment, God of all worth, triune in your nature and person. You would come and that you would speak to us as a man speaks to his friend. We acknowledge, O Lord, that as we come, even yet, for those of us who have put our hope and trust into Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who has died for us and risen up, we confess that as we come, our ears, our hearts, our lives are so often very hardened. And things that ought to be fresh and new and vital and sharp sometimes seem so dull because we are so dull. Have mercy on us, O Lord. We plead with you that we would not stand under the judgment of the word because we hear but fail to hear, fail to listen and to do, fail to believe the gospel, our gracious, powerful, kind God. Would you come and exercise that miraculous, supernatural work that you alone can do to open the deaf ears, to cause blind eyes to see, hard hearts to be softened, lives that are calcified in our sin or our boredom or our lethargy to be revitalized and made new. Oh, God, would you come to us and overcome in us all that stands against you and enable us by your grace to hear and to receive without distraction and with the help of your comforting and encouraging spirit. We ask this in that name above all names, the name which we would remember, the name of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. 
the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy in his last letter says in 2 Timothy 2.8, Remember Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. This is God's word to us this morning. Many years ago, when my wife and I, and at that time our little son, were in a European country, for just a short while we met a young woman who was from the country of Iran, and she was converted and began to be discipled, but she was returning home. And she determined to take with her a Bible knowing full well what that meant. Knowing that it could mean that even at the airport she would be arrested and taken to prison, hurt, and potentially even taken to death. And she did it anyway. She wasn't a strong personality, I would say. She wasn't a heroic sort of person, the kind of person you would look up to and think was amazing. But she was a woman who knew the value of things, and she knew what the price of Christ was. She was ready to pay with everything that she had. I think that story reminds us, as we come to a text that is in some ways hard, that we really discover what matters most to us when we have to decide what we're willing to give up for it. There's an exchange rate in all of our hearts, and we have to make a decision what the value is of the Lord Jesus Christ. Would we readily give up our faith? Would we easily go down with our biblical convictions just because of someone else's opinion? What price for Jesus? That's a question you have to answer, whether you are getting on a plane to Iran Or just going out to eat at a restaurant? Am I willing to lose my job? Am I willing to give up my house? Would I consider losing my reputation? Is Jesus really worth that much? That's what he's calling you to. That's what he claims to be worth. So much that we ought to even be willing in those more private moments to get up off the couch and lose the remote and our comfortable life, and follow him. Brothers and sisters, Paul's burden in this whole letter, his final letter, as he's going through prison, as he's in deep trial, everyone's abandoned him, he says in chapter 1, all those of Asia who were with him at one time. He writes because his burden is for Timothy, his son of the faith, a pastor there in Ephesus, and for you, for the whole church, that through trials, deep burdens, suffering, Opposition, we 
would hold on to Jesus because he's worth it. Because he is of infinite value. Now we can say that and we can believe it. But how is it that we stir our souls out of the complacency and fear to which we are so often subject and really embrace the cross and treasure Jesus above all things? How could that young Iranian girl do that brave deed and even face death and suffering for Christ? Well, I would submit that here is the answer. At least one answer that Paul would give to us. A simple gospel command. Verse 8. Remember. Remember Jesus Christ. Remember him. Who he is. Remember what he's worth. What he's done. His connection to you. All that he's promised to you. The ways he has dealt with you. All of his kindness and mercy. All that the word of God says about him. Remember him. Remember him entirely. And this is really a struggle for us. We live in a day when we are surrounded by a rising tide of information and notifications. You're probably going to get a few while you're sitting here in worship. And we struggle even just to remember the basic things on the calendar. Play dates, doctor's appointments, things we need from the store, birthdays, anniversaries, deadlines, work tasks. Doesn't it get a little bit overwhelming? But the most significant thing most likely never makes it onto our calendar and never shows up on a to-do list. And it's this. Remember Jesus Christ. Forgetting him is perhaps our great spiritual malady. Well, what do we mean here? As Paul says these opening words, which we'll consider in two parts in just a little while, what does he mean by remember? Maybe a helpful way to think about this command. It is a command. Remember is to put the words into the context for those of us who are married and those of us who aren't. You can imagine, remember your marriage. What would that mean? Well, different aspects to this, aren't there? Recall you and your sweetheart sitting there on a couch with a little, uh, having a date. You maybe speak to each other, remember the day that we got married. You bring it back to mind. But remembering can mean to preserve. And maybe some of you who are married, you have your little album of wedding photos. Some of you have your wedding gown. Maybe you have that slice of cake in the freezer. I don't know if I'd eat it, by the way. But you remember the ceremony, and you have specific things that you use to bring it back to mind. Both of those things, however, are a reflection on the past. Paul is thinking more of the present. We might put it this way. Remember or consider your marriage. If you're married, there shouldn't be a day that goes by that you don't act like a married man or a married woman. You constantly have it in mind. You don't forget. You know it's a basic part of your reality that you are married. It's become such a part of your experience even that it doesn't surprise you to find someone else in your home rearranging your things. You don't look at other people with the same interest. You come home of nights. You have similar interests or new interests you never had. You devote yourself in love to the person you have promised to love. You remember that you are married. This 
is the root of what Paul is saying. Yes, recall, think often about what Jesus has done for you. Absolutely, he does mean this. Think of your union with him, yes. Preserve that. Jesus even calls us to this, which we'll in a few moments celebrate. When he says, do this, remember what he says? This table, this bread, this cup, in remembrance of me, not just recalling to mind, but in a specific way, memorializing his dying love. We are given sacraments that we might remember him. But the strength of this command falls in the present, not just recalling, recollecting the past. As one commentator says it, remember here has the force of, bear this in mind. Or we might put it in the way that Hebrews 12, 3 puts it. And it's speaking of Jesus. Consider him. Consider him, and in that passage, consider him lest in our persecution and trial we become weary and faint-hearted. That's the context in which Paul is here writing. Conflict, trouble, persecution, consider him. Remember Jesus. He needs to, in other words, be constantly at the forefront of our minds, part of our experience, not a surprise to us, but utterly shaping everything that we do through his life and death, his resurrection, because we have a new status in him. We've come into a new creation through him. This is our condition. We must live according to him. We remember him. And how deeply we need this exhortation because we are so inclined to lapse into spiritual amnesia. Haven't you seen that in the course of the past week? Is that not part of the reason why God is so tender and gracious to you and why you showed up this morning that you might hear again the word of the gospel because we are so absurd and so distorted in our hearts, dare I say so adulterous and idolatrous that we forget Jesus. You might have an excellent memory. You might remember phone numbers from long ago. Some of you do. I do. You could, perhaps some of you, I can't recall instantly the things that you were doing six years ago today. But sin clings so closely to you and me that we don't remember and we don't consider and we don't think about and we don't really live from continuously the reality of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Maybe you were converted in the most astonishing way. Maybe you've seen God answer the most amazing prayers. And even after all of that, you forget. I forget. It's as if our old nature wants to put the thumb on the scales and tip the value of the exchange rate to the things of this world. And this is what we find continually in the story of God's people. Think of the old covenant. Think of Israel in the time of Judges, chapter 3, verse 7. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. What was it they did? They forgot the Lord their God. And they served the Baals and the Asherah. After the exodus, they saw the plagues. They saw the waters piled up on either side of them. They saw God's mighty works. They saw the man in the wilderness. And they forgot. Do not think that you and I have such amazing spiritual memory that we will not likewise be so easily fooled. Do you know that there are whole books of the Bible that are written for this purpose that we would remember? Deuteronomy is one of them. Second Peter is another. We are meant to remember. And to remember Jesus, not just as a person of long ago, someone that we'll meet someday, 
But we must remember who he is. We must remember what he's done with present effect. Who he is has to bear on my life now. Or all I've got is a tradition of washing the outside of my life. And no real relationship with him who is the life. We must remember Jesus. And if we don't, forgetting leads off directly away from him. We are living in a culture that no longer we may say is friendly and so open to the gospel. Christians are sometimes regarded as enemies, as bigots. And perhaps sometimes we have represented some of those worst tendencies. But Jesus certainly has never. And we are inclined, dear friends, to be ashamed. To be ashamed of Jesus and of his gospel and our sufferings for his sake. Paul writes about this in chapter 1. Don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, he says in verse 8. He speaks of Phagellus and Hermogenes who were ashamed of him and turned away from him. And though we may not experience the kind of persecution and suffering that Paul was, isn't it true that we also must fight against the world, must fight against our flesh, must fight against temptation and Satan's temptations of us. And we are so ready to take a few comforts and a few channels and exchange them for Jesus. We must remember the one who is worth more than all things. We must remember. So here are the two things. That we might remember, Paul gives us instruction in these. First, verses 8 through 10, remember that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Notice that in verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. He has died. He has died for sinners. He has paid the price. All who come to him by faith are free, but notice what his current condition is. Not dead, but risen. He is risen up in glory, truly alive. Appreciate what Paul is saying. We must get this. Jesus, our relationship to him is not something merely in the past. The resurrection is in the past, but his life is in the present. His death has gone before, but he is now alive. There's no Christianity without that. There is no hope without that. Neither is there any naturalistic explanation for what Jesus did on Easter morning. There's no getting around either the Bible's claims that Jesus is really God and he broke the back of death. But he is, in fact, truly presently alive. And we remember him. This is so crucial to our understanding, to remember him rightly. We remember him when we come to worship, not by putting flowers on a grave, but by having living communion with a living Christ. You in worship this morning have come not to seek the living among the dead. You have come to meet with the living Jesus who has risen and by his spirit is with us. This is who he is. Now, since he lives, we read in Revelation that he has all power over death. He had the invincible power to lay down his life and take it again. And so we read 
of his vision given to John, Revelation 1.17. He laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Don't you love that? The end of your life is secured by a lock to which Jesus has the key. But if he has the key to death and hell, he also has all the power over sin. Why has death come into the world? It is the wages of our sin, but he has paid it. The sting of death is taken away. Nothing then can possibly stand in the way of Christ who destroys every enemy of his. What habit can he not break? What fear can he not overcome? What sordid consequence of our sin can he not forgive and redeem? There is real hope for you and me because Jesus Christ is really alive, but he is more than just alive. He is, Paul says, the offspring or the seed of David. In the Old Covenant, of course, God promised his people that one would come, the son of David, and would sit upon the throne of David. His kingdom would never have an end. He would be the Messiah, the true Savior, God's anointed one. He would fulfill all the expectations and promises that came to nothing in the Old Covenant. True man with a real human ancestry, the holy heir of the kingdom of David, the kingdom of God. This is Jesus. Risen. Reigning. Lord of all. All power and authority given to his hand. All ability to raise from the dead and to conquer sin. This is who we must remember. This is a sort of compact creed. Do you notice this? Two short statements, but it really summarizes everything there is to know about the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's God come the flesh. He's of the seed of David. He's died for our sins. He's now alive. He is Messiah. He's king. He's ruling all things. This is the message of the apostle Paul. This is the gospel. This is what we must remember. And so he goes further. Verse 9. And we ought then to remember this. As this is the gospel, Paul holds himself up as an example of suffering for Christ because this gospel is true. Jesus' word is true. He suffers, he says, endures hardship. This is the very thing that he's told Timothy and all of us to do in verse 3 of this chapter. Share in suffering or simply endure hardship. He says, I'm enduring hardship for Christ. This worthy one, I remember him, and therefore, I am willing to suffer. Again, remember, what is Paul's chief concern? That you and I, in a canceled culture, when we feel the weight of our own shame and guilt, will persist not to rely on self, not to take to heart the scolding of others, but to press on in faith in Jesus Christ. So Paul's imprisonment is a model for this. He holds on because the gospel is true, and so he is willing to be treated even as a criminal. And as one writer says, 
This is a technical word that was reserved for burglars and murderers, for traitors and the like. Here's this law-abiding man, this man who is so committed to the law that he excelled everybody else. And here he is under tremendous shame. Others even turn away, not even wanting to touch or be associated with his shame. If it were you or me, and we knew how right we were, how we had actually honored the law, how we had actually honored the God of the law, wouldn't you feel a deep sense of anger and bitterness? How could they treat me this way? Do they know what they're doing to me? Such corruption in the world, we'd complain perhaps. But do you notice that the tenor of Paul's response to his situation is not indignation, but submission. He remembers Christ. Jesus has suffered that you and I might be delivered. He remembers Jesus. And he is willing to endure with Jesus the shame of Christ's messianic office. He is not ashamed. Yes, in chains. But that is not a loss for him. It is not a loss for the gospel. Hear what he says. I am suffering bound with chains as a criminal, but... The word of God is not bound. These are such powerful words. When Christian ministers are hindered, the word is not. When you are prevented from sharing the gospel, when you face spiritual attack that will even close your mouth, the word of God is still moving and working by the Holy Spirit. Paul says this in Philippians chapter 1. Amazingly, he regards his imprisonment even as an asset because there he is in jail, writing to the Philippians, and he says that the gospel is spreading with great power among his guards. And those who are outside, out of prison, his timid brothers are growing in boldness, all because of his incarceration. The gospel is going forward. Jesus is at work. This is the Jesus that we remember who can overcome the walls of a prison and the shackles on the apostles' arms. And this continues to this day in places like Iran or China or North Korea where governments make every effort to shut down the gospel. It continues to grow, to develop, even in our history as a denomination. If you can remember stories from Eritrea of a pastor now in the United States and others who, when their prison guards heard the good news from them, were converted. The gospel of Christ is at work. We remember his power. He really is alive. He really is ruling, even if we are prevented in our bodies. This is part of what Jesus is doing. Through all the filth and the smell of the prison, the malnourishment, the lack of space, the constant proximity to felons, their breath, their foul looks, their evil words, their selfish actions, a room without air conditioning, aches and stiffness from being unable to move, constantly being brought in and out for interrogations, just watching the daylight pass through the cracks in the walls. In this shameful and wretched place, he does not feel, Paul does not feel impatience or waste. He recognizes this is within the purpose of Jesus. He remembers 
Jesus Christ. Each moment recalling to mind who he is, what he's done, what he means to Paul, there must have been moments of deep discouragement and discontent and struggles with despair. Paul is not that unlike us, is he? But he remembers Jesus Christ and that he is working out his glorious purpose. And that purpose is for the great glory of Jesus in the salvation of his chosen, his elect people. When you face trials, whether they are in persecution or simply the hardship of a flat tire, you must perceive that experience within the greater purposes of Jesus. You must remember Jesus. You and I must remember Jesus is working even in our weakness, even in great trial, and even when we are tempted, maybe by a coworker who seems ready to humiliate us, maybe by the fear of what people at another table in the restaurant are going to say when we bow our heads to pray, we must remember Jesus. To put it in the way that John Stott puts it, it's as if Paul, writing to Timothy, says this. When you are tempted, Timothy, to avoid pain, humiliation, suffering, or death in your ministry, remember Jesus Christ and think again. Yes, dear friends, he is risen, and so we think again and again and again about such a Savior. But notice as well the second thing. Verses 11 through 13, remember that Jesus Christ is faithful. Paul says this in verse 11, this saying is trustworthy or faithful. In a world of things that we're not sure anymore what we can believe, this is bedrock truth. And I love the way that Calvin puts it. If we don't perceive Christ in the crosses that he sends, then he says, let us remember to present this shield. This is a faithful saying. In temptation and doubt, we hold up these words that follow as our source of protection. This is faithful. This is true. There are if-then statements about this. You'll notice there's a logic to the gospel. And notice that, first of all, the first two statements speak about our union, our being joined to Jesus. If we have died with him, he's not speaking about the end of our life so much as what it means that we have come into Christ and through the Spirit, really been joined to that action that Jesus took for us there on the cross. The Bible says it again and again. The death of Jesus was our death. In every true and real sense, no, you and I are still subject to physical death, though we will rise with him too. But in every real sense in which we can actually die and be separated from the blessing of God and subject to his wrath, we have already died. Our death is not in front of us, but behind us. We have died to sin, Paul says in Romans 6, and therefore we shall live. But we must do more than just live. We must with him endure. We must suffer the shame, the discouragement, the trials, the sufferings, of a world that does not understand, that lies in darkness and under the power of the wicked one, it is then we have this assurance that we shall reign with him. That is the prospect. That is the end to which we are going. Jesus reigns. We will reign with him. 
But put this, since we're rather individualistic in our culture, put this into a context in which we may better understand it. Use gospel pronouns. If I have died with him, I shall live. If I endure with him, I shall reign with him. And because I can say that of me, I can say it of you. And we can collectively say, we shall reign with him. You, dear brothers and sisters, enduring the trouble of this world and its mockery, you shall reign. What inconceivable glory given to you in Christ. This is why we must remember him. We must recall what he has promised and done for us. Never be separated from him in anything. And do you notice how in these statements we've died with him, we'll live with him, we, if we endure with him, we will reign with him. The idea is this wonderful joining to him. We have so found our lives bound up with him, we can never be separated. It's as if Jesus is at one end of the rope and we are at the other. We may not see. We may not always see him at the other end. But we are inextricably bound to his life by faith. But there is a second possibility and a warning implicit for which we must further remember Christ. That if we deny him, he will also deny us. This is Psalm, is it not? And it echoes the words of Jesus in Matthew 10. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. In that same passage, it's very striking, Jesus is describing how very valuable we are to God. It is because we know how valued we are, because we know the Son has given his life for us, that we are motivated, remembering him, not to deny him. But this is a practical test, isn't it? The opportunity will come, dear friend. This is not a maybe. This is not a perhaps it'll happen to somebody else. No, temptation will come at a moment's notice. It might happen on the way home today. You will be tempted to deny Jesus. And then you must remember what he has said and what he has done. He has commanded you. He has called you to this great blessing of following him and that you might do it. He says, deny yourself. To remember him, we must deny ourselves. You must deny him or deny yourself. You cannot have a spiritual Switzerland in which you get to kind of be the mediating party and decide who you're going to follow at the right time. There's no limping along between two opinions. You must decide in following Jesus whose cause you will remember, your own or the Savior's. That decision is before you. It is not simply once in a lifetime. It is day by day. It is moment by moment. Remember Jesus Christ. Now we have encouragement. If we're faithless, he is still faithful. This is perhaps not what we would expect, but there are two dimensions here to unbelief. We may claim to have faith, but really have no true faith, and turn away, and then he will execute upon us the threats of his gospel. He is faithful to them after all, but for us who are weak and mixed in our faith, who find ourselves continually struggling, even just to hold two thoughts of Jesus together in our heads and to pray 
without being completely distracted. He's faithful, dear friend. In our faithlessness, he will uphold his promise and preserve what he's begun. Great is his faithfulness. That's his character. This is the one who cannot deny himself. He will be true to himself. Do you see where this puts the burden then for persevering through shame, sorrow, suffering, and temptation in this life? Squarely on Jesus. Romans 3 says it this way. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Your weakness, my weakness, our failures and sin will never negate the fact that Jesus is the one who in Revelation 19 is said to be faithful and true. And he will overcome and in righteousness even make war against our own sins. And so we can, dear trembling saint, rest in him. We remember him in our weakness. We remember him in our struggle. Perhaps a historical example will help us here as we draw to a close. And that's the example of Thomas Cranmer. Does anybody remember that name? Archbishop Cranmer. During the English Reformation, he was striving to reform the Church of England according to the word of God. And things began to fall apart when Bloody Mary came in onto the throne. Cranmer was imprisoned and taken up to a tower to watch as Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley were burned at the stake for their faith on October 16, 1555. And he wrote a, a smuggled letter out to a, a friend saying, I pray that God may grant that we may endure to the end. But perhaps that scene watching his friends burn led to what followed, a series of recantations, turning away from the true doctrine of God. And it seemed like a great moment for Mary, who was attempting with all her efforts to stomp out a return to the word of God in England. And we have to imagine that Cranmer was weak here. And he was doing this to escape the flames. But despite all his recantations, Mary was determined to kill him. And it was in the face of that approaching death that suddenly he regained courage. He was brought to a final recantation. His script was there before him, but he went off it. And he publicly renounced his recantations, upheld the true gospel, and he stated this. I have written many things untrue, and forasmuch as my hand hath offended, writing contrary to my heart, therefore my hand shall first be punished, for when I come to the fire, it shall first be burned. He was immediately pulled down from the pulpit as quickly as possible, taken to the flames, and the first thing he did was to hold out his hand until it burned to a cinder. He denied himself. And all the while he said, this unworthy right hand. Great weakness, friends. But in that moment, do you see that he amazingly remembered Jesus Christ and the power and the promises of the Savior? Friends, we are so inclined to forget him. But he never forgets you. Day and night you are upon his heart. He prays for you continually. How can we forget the one who has so loved us? How can we be afraid of what others will think? How can we close our mouth to speak his glory? How can we be concerned 
when shame is held out before us by the world, but glory by Jesus. When Christ appears, Colossians 3 says, you also will appear with him in glory. How can you forget that? How can we forget the beauty and the glory to which Jesus is pressing us forward? How can we be put off when we know what is before us? True dawn is about to break. And then we will awake in everlasting glory and behold the face of our God forever in light and holiness without shame and guilt and fear and supreme happiness. All of this lies before you because of Jesus Christ. I don't know what happened to that girl, our Iranian friend, but I know this. She has a risen and a faithful Savior, and so do you. And it is in remembering him that you will triumph. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we pray write these things upon our heart and enable us that we would not forget all your mercies to us. And Jesus, help us to remember that he is risen, and let us remember that he is also faithful. We pray in his name. Amen.